Special intern here, and let me also welcome you. Uh, I'm very glad that I get to bring the word to you this morning. Our passage is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, starting in verse 57. Luke, chapter 1, verse 57. Let's pay close attention to the reading of God's word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open this passage to us Bless my words, bless whatever is in them that is true, and make fail anything in them that is false. Help us to see Jesus in this passage today. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, I got the chance to visit the country of Israel. And uh, over a weekend while I was there, I, I visited some friends at a church that was mostly Jewish Christian. I think I met one other Gentile while I was there. Um, and it was an interesting experience. Uh, I didn't speak the language. I can speak, well, read Hebrew from about 2,000 years ago, but uh, this changed a bit in that time. Uh, and I had to receive this Bible study that I attended through translation. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who was once a little kid running like a maniac around the church after service, just like the kids here do. So I, I don't usually feel out of place at a church. But it was an interesting experience as I received hospitality, as I was welcomed in, to feel 
that I wasn't just born to this, that there's a story and a people that far precedes me that I've been invited into and grafted into. And as I received their hospitality, I, I felt that, that I've been invited into Israel's story. Well, you know, as we look at this series through the songs of Advents, uh, that's the theme of, of, of many of them. Not till Simeon, when we get to the end, are we going to hear anything about the Gentiles. And that's especially true of the song we're going to hear today. It invites us to root ourselves in Israel's story and shows us that Jesus is the climax of it. So as we look at this song today, we're going to see three points. First, Jesus is the climax of Israel's story. Second, Israel needs deliverance from her enemies. And third, Israel needs forgiveness for her sins. Let me say those again. Jesus is the climax of Israel's story. Israel needs deliverance from her enemies. And Israel needs forgiveness for her sins. So, the first point. Jesus is the climax of Israel's story. You know, from time to time, I, I hear pastors talk as if the time between the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus was a time where there was no faith in Israel, where the church maybe just sort of disappeared. I think sometimes because we might skip right in our Bibles from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew, um, we forget that there were actually people there. The church did not disappear. God's people were still there waiting for the Messiah to come. But Luke definitely doesn't want us to forget that. I think that's part of what he's doing in these opening chapters. That he shows us a series of faithful Israelites, members of God's people who are waiting for this promised deliverer to arrive. So who are the people who bring us today's song? Well, we're told earlier in chapter 1 that Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They're faithful, faithful Jewish believers, but like Abraham and Sarah, Elizabeth and Zechariah have passed their whole lives without any children. But now God has given them a miracle as he promised through the angel Gabriel, and Elizabeth has had a son. You know, although Zechariah is related by marriage to Mary, whom, whom we heard her song last week, they inhabit very different social locations, don't they? You know, Mary is, is a young woman, and her song is all about how God lifts up the marginalized and humbles the exalted. Meanwhile, Zechariah is an old man. He's a priest right at the center of religious authority within Israel. You know, despite that, he doesn't actually have the faith that Mary does. He questions the angel, and he receives a bit of that humbling that Mary was talking about when he's struck speechless for nine months. I wonder if Elizabeth enjoyed the peace and quiet. But then the baby comes, and Zechariah backs up his wife, uh, they're going to call the child John, which means the Lord is gracious. And with this act of faith, his tongue is loosed, and he bursts forth into spirit-filled praise of God. 
Now, this song, as we might expect from a priest, focuses especially on the history and tradition of Israel, the story of Israel. Zechariah even begins by addressing God as the Lord God of Israel. Zechariah reminds us that God swore an oath to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the sea and that they would inherit the gates of their enemies. His song echoes the deliverance of the Exodus when Israel was set free from slavery so that they could worship God. And most of all, it echoes the promises of the prophets that a descendant of David would be raised up. That language of verse 69, raising up a horn of salvation, that might sound a bit weird to us. I don't know if if, if you're familiar with that. In the Old Testament, the horn is a symbol of power, and especially of the power God gives his people when he shows up to rescue them. This language echoes biblical prophecies of a coming heir of David that we find scattered throughout, say, the Psalms or the prophets. But, you know, the precise phrase, raising up a horn of salvation, most closely echoes the 15th of 18 blessings, which Jews pray three times a day. And this 15th blessing was the the one in that daily prayer which looked forward to a Messiah that God had promised. By the way, what does that word mean, Messiah? That's just the word that is translated in Greek as Christ, and it means anointed one. It was the promise of somebody who God would anoint and pick out as his king, just like he anointed David. Only this Messiah would be even greater than David was. So we can imagine Zechariah praying this prayer throughout his lifetime, praying that God would raise up the horn of David, just like faithful Jews everywhere. But now the time is here. His son is going to be the guy that prepares the way for the Messiah. The language of the sunrise from on high in verse 78 is also messianic language. It actually seems like it might be a pun on two different messianic titles. One of them labels the Messiah a branch that will sprout up And the other calls him a star which will come out of Jacob, or or the sun that will rise with healing in its wings. And the language of God visiting his people in verse 68, that's Old Testament language as well. Now, I feel very comfortable. I know I'm preaching from the New Testament as an Old Testament scholar, but this text feels like an Old Testament passage. In the Old Testament, God comes to visit his people, to deliver them. Notice, though, in verse 78 that it's actually the sunrise, which is the the Messiah who will come from heaven to visit his people, making it clear that this anointed one is not just going to be a regular human being, but rather God himself come down to be with his people. The hope of Israel is finally here. And with these two children, John preparing the way and Jesus coming afterwards, Israel's story comes to its climax. But this raises the question, if God is finally going to redeem Israel, what sort of redemption does Israel need? What will this deliverance look like? I think it can be summed up in two phrases, deliverance from enemies and forgiveness of sins. Let's start with our our second point here, 
deliverance from enemies. Israel needs deliverance from her enemies. Why is God raising up a horn of salvation in the house of David? Well, look at verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And then again in verse 74. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteous before him all our days. Well, who are these enemies? Who are these enemies Zechariah is talking about? Well, you know, Luke is going to open the next chapter with these words. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Okay, now, maybe those words take you back to history class with all of these, like, names and dates that you don't care about. Or maybe those words remind you of lessons and carol services you've been to in the past. But what would these words remind Luke's original hearers of? You know, I think there's a good chance that his original hearers would have thought about the great violent exploitation machine that was the Roman Empire. After all, why does a government need to register all its citizens? I think you know, it's so that they can tax them to death. I mean, let's review the political situation briefly. The guy who is in charge of Judea at this time is named Herod the Great. Uh, he reigns not only over Judea, but also Idumea to the south and Samaria and Galilee to the north. So, pretty big kingdom. But although Herod's in charge, he actually owes all of his power to Roman military support. They're the real kingmakers in the region. And so Judea is this junior allied partner of the Roman Empire and kind of a buffer state between them and their ongoing on-and-on-off-again war with the Parthians out to the east. And, you know, one of the titles that the Romans gave to Herod and let him have was procurator, which means that he had the power to raise taxes in any way that he saw fit. And under Herod, there was a whole network of tax collectors who would have extracted the money from the population, and they didn't always do this in the most just way possible. As a matter of fact, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that after Herod died, and his son Archelaus went to Rome to try to take his dad's mantle and continue his royal administration, a bunch of uh, Jewish ambassadors were sent to Rome to lobby in the opposite direction. And they accused Herod of impoverishing Judea, of killing nobles on false pretenses to steal their lands, and of appointing a swarm of tax collectors who used violent extortion to wring money out of the populace, and on top of that had a reputation for sexual assault. Of course, we might remember Herod from the slaughter of the infants in the beginning of Matthew. All around, you get the sense that he was not a particularly nice guy, and he was sitting at the top of a not very nice system of power. So when Zechariah sings his song, God's people are hard-oppressed under the Roman imperial machine. It's hard for me not to think that Zechariah has some of that in mind. But as we go through Luke's gospel, we also see that this oppression is not only human. Behind it stands Satan and his demons, and that the gospel is full of these stories of demonic oppression. 
The enemies are more than just flesh and blood. But against all these forces, Zechariah's song tells us that God is on Israel's side. He is raising up a horn to liberate them. We see this in the ministry of both John and Jesus as we keep going through the gospel. They advocate for the oppressed. When we meet John later in Luke 3, we find him saying, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. He exhorts the tax collectors and the soldiers not to exploit people. John was not afraid to speak truth to power. In fact, did you remember what finally gets John killed? It's Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, and not a much nicer guy, uh, when he divorces his wife so that he can steal his brother's wife. And John does not let him get away with it. Jesus also stood up for the oppressed. As Luke records for us, his teaching includes not only the words, blessed are the poor, but also woe to the rich. He commands his followers to lend to the poor, expecting nothing in return. And he stands up to the spiritual enemies as well. Wherever the gospel of Jesus' kingdom goes, the demons are driven out and victims are rescued from their clutches. Zechariah's song points forward to this, and it also tells us what the grand purpose of this all is. Look at verse 73. To grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, in his presence all our days. This is language that might remind you of the story of Moses and the exodus of Israel. Do you remember what was the first thing that Moses asked from Pharaoh? Probably remember, let my people go. But there's more to it. Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. That's what God tells Pharaoh to do. God asks for time off for the Israelites so they can go celebrate a religious festival. But Pharaoh, like so many unjust bosses, uh, when the workers demand concessions, he concludes the problem is the workers are just lazy and uh, we need to work them even harder so they won't get such crazy ideas. And that's what starts off the whole chain of events that leads to the deliverance of God's people. The whole point of liberation here is freedom to worship God without fear. The liberation offered here is not a purely material liberation, like so many modern secular revolutions offer, where people are free to live life however they see fit, according to their human wisdom. Rather, liberation allows humans to become what they were always meant to be. Our ultimate purpose is to serve in God's presence and reflect His righteousness and holiness. Now, the Bible, it doesn't separate the issue of material oppression from the issue of our spiritual relationship with God. I mean, I think sometimes our theologies can. You know, on the one hand, some theologies emphasize material liberation so much that they hardly ever talk about where we stand with God in our hearts. And what is more, there may be a danger of collapsing the hope we have in the return of Christ into present-day political movements in the here and now. But on the other hand, some theologies focus in only on our getting saved and our own individual relationship with God, and they forget to say anything about poverty and wealth and oppression. But John and, and Jesus, as well as his apostles, held both together in their preaching. 
They called out oppression and they called their hearers to godly living. If we only focus on one of these things or, or we play them off against each other, then our theology is not biblical. Now, I know that raises a lot of questions. Because, let's be honest, Christians in America, we're not all on the same page about what the details of this look like, are we? You know, what should we think about this or that political issue? I don't think we even agree on the broad principles of how we should interact with the government. And that's all important stuff for us to think through as we try to figure out as a church how to be faithful to God's Word in the daily lives that He's called us to. But for today... I want to stay where Zechariah's song stays, which is not so much focused on what we should do, but is focused entirely upon what God is doing. God cares about the oppression Israel is suffering under. And in Jesus, he's going to act in a way that delivers his people from their enemies and sets them free to serve him without fear. That's something we can rejoice in, even if the details aren't really clear to us. It's something to celebrate as part of the meaning of Christmas. Something we can look forward to in hope as we wait for Jesus to come again to set all things right. Do you care about the oppression in the world? God does too. Are you discouraged by it? There is hope in Jesus. So that's our second point. Israel needs deliverance from her enemies. Third point. Israel needs the forgiveness of sins. God's mercy and forgiveness come up several times in this song. Look at verse 72. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. This is a big Old Testament theme, Zechariah recognizes that God's faithfulness to his people isn't based on their righteousness, which has, in many points in Israel's story, been sorely lacking. Rather, God's faithfulness to his people is based on his own mercy, his own free commitment to them, the fact that he'll stick with them even in spite of their sin. And this truth of forgiveness of sins, it's going to be central in John's ministry as well, isn't it? Verse 76, and you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. John is going to give the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. You see, just because God's people are oppressed, that doesn't mean that they're sinless. Rather, it's precisely God's oppressed people who need to prepare themselves for God by by repenting of their sins. Verse 79 makes it clear that they are in darkness. They need God's light to guide their feet into the way of peace. They don't know the way to live a whole life. They need God to guide them there. And actually, this element, it was already present way back when the angel Gabriel first announced John's birth. In Malachi, he quotes, echoes a prophecy from Malachi 3, that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. 
And John's ministry here is to prepare them. And when we actually see John coming on the scene, we see him doing a lot of baptizing. And what's the point of baptism, of this washing with water? It's that the people come and confess their sins. It's a ritual of repentance that recognizes their need for God's purification. Well, John prepares the way, but Jesus is the one who actually brings this forgiveness. Maybe you remember when he heals the paralyzed man, he he doesn't just heal him physically, but he says to him, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees know what kind of claim that is. Only God has the authority to claim sins. Here in Jesus, God has come close, but not in judgment on sinners, but in forgiveness and mercy. You see, blessed are the poor doesn't actually mean that the poor are sinless. Rather, it means that through repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus for forgiveness, they receive a blessing. And for that matter, woe to the rich doesn't mean that the rich can't be forgiven. As, you know, you, and we talked about how oppressive the tax collection system was earlier, didn't we? So it might come as a big surprise to you that some of the sinners Jesus forgives and spends a lot of time hanging out with are tax collectors. In fact, one of them, Levi, he even makes one of his 12 apostles. And maybe even Zechariah would be a little surprised at how his words are fulfilled there. It's interesting. In Luke 18, we meet a rich young ruler. And you might think to yourself, okay, this is one of the people of Israel that we're talking about. He says that he's, he's kept the law of Moses his entire life. But he's too attached to his wealth to follow Jesus. And then in the very next chapter, this is the very next chapter in Luke, we meet this dude called Zacchaeus. He's not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. He's one of the higher-ups, and he's gotten very rich, exploiting the poor. So probably one of the enemies from Zechariah's song, right? That's what we would think. And yet, when Jesus shows him kindness and comes to his house, he's undone. He's melted by God's mercy. He repents of his sins. He pays back everything he stole times four, and he gives away fully half of his wealth to the poor. You know, one of the interesting things about Zechariah's song, if we connect it to other messianic writings from around this time, from elsewhere uh, in, uh, in, in Judaism, is that while it talks about deliverance from enemies, There's nothing about the Messiah coming as a great military hero and waging war on the Romans and all their cronies. It turns out that Jesus is able to defeat his enemies by loving them. Oppression can be dismantled when the oppressor is transformed by God's forgiving love. Oppressed and oppressor can be reconciled by God's forgiving love. You know, that's also not a message you're likely to get from the prophets of secular revolution. But it's one we get in Zechariah's song. Verse 78, because of our merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. These verses say that the natural state of the world is darkness, the shadow of death. Sinful humans 
going about, oppressing and being oppressed. But Jesus rises upon the world like the sun with all its rays driving the darkness away. And all of this is because of God's merciful compassion. His, I, uh, I think our translation puts it, his tender mercy. That word for tender is actually the Greek word for gut, for guts. You know, like down here. It's, it's, it's the compassion that you feel physically. And, and although God doesn't have a body, what this language tells us is that his compassion is no less real than ours. In fact, it's much more so. And when we see Jesus, look with compassion upon sinners. See the compassion and love of God for us. Let me ask you, where do you need that compassion today? Where do you need God's tender love? Where do you need his forgiveness? Maybe you're in love with money, even when its pursuit hurts others. Maybe you're addicted to buying things, enslaved to the pleasures the market holds out to you with hollow promises that they'll ultimately satisfy your cravings. Maybe you're bound by addiction to food, sex, or drugs. Maybe it's your own pride and self-righteousness that's kept you from following God. This child who was born in Bethlehem was born for sinners like you and me. A light in our darkness. He lived a perfect and holy life so that he could hold out God's compassion to you. He died on the cross taking the penalty of the sin that you deserve so that you could be forgiven. He was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven so that you could stand before God as accepted sons and daughters. And he's coming back again put all things right so that we will be able to serve him without fear forever. Blessed be the God of Israel. Let's praise him for his redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus, born as a small child in weakness, and yet God with us, the God who cares for us, the God who drives away our darkness, the God who breaks down our stubbornness and brings us to forgiveness and life. We pray that you would root this word deeply in our hearts, and we pray that we would respond by praising Jesus and living our lives in the light of his gospel. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.